few years ago, an incident occurred that represents the way a lot of people feel today. In fact, the incident could have come from yesterday's headlines or yesterday's news feed. A 47-year-old man named Robert and his 51-year-old wife named Paula were found shot to death in their suburban home near Philadelphia. They were socially prominent people. They lived affluent lifestyles. Paula had phoned the police and had said, my husband begged me to kill him. I did it. I shot him, and now I'm going to kill myself. When the police got to their home just a short time later, only to find a murder-suicide, they also found a note that said, we have no hope for the future. We have no hope for the future. It's, it's really absolutely tragic. And yet, today, many people, maybe even you, know exactly what that feels like, to not have a sense of hope for the future. Friends, we all need hope. We all desperately need hope. But it's important for us to know it's not the worldly kind of hope that we need that is much more like wishful thinking. Worldly hope, which is actually wishful thinking, sounds a lot like, I hope the weather is nice today. I hope my team wins in the championship. I hope my life is happy and I'm always healthy. I hope everything works out the way I want it to you. Friends, those are wishes. That is not biblical hope. What we need is a hope that the Scripture talks about. It's a sure confidence because it's grounded in the action of God in the past, and it has a secure future because it's based upon the promises of the God who is in the past and is in the present and will be in the future. He is forever Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. We need hope based in the promises of the one who cannot lie and will never fail. That's the kind of hope that we need. That's the kind of hope that will see you through no matter what you face in this life. Now, as we continue preaching today in our series in the book of Isaiah, this coming king that we're looking at, these prophecies that were made of this one who would come to the earth let me remind you where we are in the life of the people of Israel. Everything has gone bad. In fact, everything has crumbled at this point. God has judged the nation, just as he said he would, if, if they would not come back to him. They kept putting their hope in the things of this world, things like finances and security and houses and family and political leaders and their own ability to control the outcomes of the world around them, and it had all crumbled. Everything had fallen apart. God had judged the nation because they had forsaken their allegiance to the living God. Now, as Isaiah is preaching these words, the Assyrians are routing the whole world. 
They're destroying everything. They're overtaking everyone. The the most uh, recent, probably, example that we can relate to would have been when the Nazis rolled across Europe and nation after nation, country after country fell to their military might. That's what the Assyrians were like. They were devastating everything in their path. The northern kingdom of Israel has been completely annihilated. The southern kingdom of Judah has now fallen also. People have died. There is destruction. Many have been taken off into slavery. Their life has been destroyed, and the people had no hope. And it's in the middle of this that God, through the prophet Isaiah, speaks a message of hope. If you would like to take out your bulletin insert, we're going to look at the text from Isaiah chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. It'll be on the screens, but you might be able to see it better up close. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. God promises a coming king who will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's described poetically as this stump, uh, this shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse, a branch that will bear much fruit. And it's a picture we all get. It's a tree that has been completely cut down to the ground, and it looks like it's dead, like there's nothing left. But from this dead place, from this cut-off place, shall come a shoot that springs up. Because though the top is gone, there's life in the roots. We all know what this picture looks like. And it is the image that God gave to the people after the fall of their kings, after the fall of their dynasties, when their life had been destroyed. Yes, it looks like it's all gone, but a shoot's going to come up. And this shoot is going to be one who bears much fruit. And that prophecy of Isaiah 11, verse 1, was fulfilled beginning 700 years after Isaiah lived with the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. He's like, he's like the shoot. He doesn't look like much at first, does he? In fact, he didn't have all that much influence in the world. There are a lot of people who, at least from the world's standards, have had a whole lot more influence, at least initially. He doesn't look like much in his life in this backwater town, in this small country. And yet from him have come millions and probably billions of people into the kingdom of God. He has borne much fruit through his life and through his death and through his resurrection. And that fruit continues to build and grow so that one day the kingdom of God will be glorious and majestic, the greatest kingdom that has ever been known on this planet. He's going to fully reorder the brokenness of the creation and restore everything to the way it was intended to be, and it will last for all of eternity. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise. It doesn't come through politics. It doesn't come through a program. It comes through the person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's look back at this text about this king who has this humble origin. How will he accomplish the work of God? He will have the Spirit of the Lord. Look at verse 2. 
This is what began at Jesus' baptism. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, think about Jesus' wisdom and understanding. The people were always marveling over what he had to say. They said, he doesn't talk like the scribes. He doesn't talk like the teachers of the law. He doesn't talk like these people who only recite what others have said. No, he speaks with an authority that is mind-blowing. Nobody could ever corner him. Nobody could ever upend him. He always graciously but fully got out of every pickle and every jam that the Pharisees and the Sadducees tried to trip him up with because he had the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding. Think about Jesus' counsel and his might. Do you remember the story of the woman who was caught in adultery? The self-righteous Pharisee men were going to have her killed. They were going to kill her by stoning her. And Jesus enters right into the middle of the picture And he says to them, let he who has no sin be the one to cast the first stone and rock after rock fell to the ground as man after man left. And Jesus looked at her and said, where are your accusers? They're not here. And I don't accuse you either, but now go and sin no more. It's beautiful. The tenderness, the wisdom, the counsel, the might Think about Jesus' knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Every breath, every moment, every heartbeat, he lived for the will of God. At one point he said, my food is to do your will, Father. Now think about that. I would rather do your will than eat. And we know on that last night of his life as he was looking to the cross which would come the next day, in a garden of Gethsemane, as he was seeing what was coming, the full fury of the wrath of God against sin was going to be poured out upon him. As he stood in our place, taking our sin upon him, he said, Father, I don't want this cup of the wrath of God, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I would rather be damned than to forsake your will and lose your people for all of eternity. That's the fear of the Lord. And what's so amazing is that Jesus, upon whom this spirit rests without any kind of measure, without being held back in any kind of way, not only has that spirit upon him, but he has come, as John the Baptist said, to baptize us in the same spirit of might and wisdom and counsel and power and the fear of the Lord. As John was baptizing out in the wilderness and the people were coming to him, they were fleeing to John in the wilderness. He said to them, I baptize you in water for repentance, but one is coming after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Friends, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you must understand salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit are not the same thing. They might go together, but they're often separate events. You can be saved and have no power in your life. Now, you can't be saved and not have the Spirit of God in your life. 
And so I want to bring assurance to your hearts. If you can say from your heart, Jesus Christ is Lord, God raised him from the dead according to the word of God in Romans chapter 10, then you are a Christian. But you may be a powerless Christian. And you need the power of God. Why? Because you'll be radically inconsistent without it. You'll be wildly ineffective without it. You will get worn out without the power of the Spirit of God, the baptism of God's Spirit in your life. And He will give it to you. He will freely give it to you. But He will never force it upon you. And so if you'd rather go about a mediocre Christian life, I suppose He will allow it. But it doesn't have to be that way. Look at the text again in verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins." This promised king will reign in righteousness. He'll be completely at peace with God. And he will bring about peace with God and other people. He will be completely at home with the Father. He will make it possible for those who follow him to be at home with the Father, not because of any kind of rightness we have, but because of the rightness and the righteousness he freely gives to those who trust him. He will not, thank God, judge by appearances. Is anybody glad for that? Goodness, the world judges by the way things look and the way they sound. Let me just ask, all right, I'm going to preach for a minute. Let me ask you ladies for a minute. Have you ever felt yourself under the withering criticism of the way the world says you should look, the way your body should be? He does not judge that way. And he wants to set you free from that pressure that you have lived under since you were little girls. May God's mercy and grace so flood your hearts that you know the freedom your Father has for you. He does not judge by what he sees. He sees the heart. He sees your heart. That's why, that's why the prostitutes and the sinners came to him. They flocked to him. And the self-righteous they were disgusted by what they saw in these people, but not Jesus, because he saw through the sin. Oh, there was sin. But he saw through the sin to hearts that were desperate to be reunited with God. Are you desperate to be reunited with God? Then he will see your heart and he will call you, but you must come in poverty of spirit. You must be willing to turn aside from your sin to allow him to free you from the lies that have been over your lives. And you know what he'll do in that place? He will invite you not only to give him your sin, but he will walk into your sorrows with you. Do you know that he wants to walk into your sorrows with you? Anybody have sorrow in the room? hard to be human and not have sorrow. One of my favorite moments in all of C.S. Lewis's Narnia, you knew I'd had to get one more in, right? <laughs> it was from the book, The Horse and His Boy. 
In the scene, the boy Shasta has been left behind by his companions. He's traveling alone, and he's feeling really sorry for himself because he's had a hard life. There's been a lot of misfortune that's come, and he doesn't understand it. And in the midst of that place, you know that lonely place, that 3 a.m. place? In the midst of that place, in the emptiness, Aslan the lion, Jesus, shows up. And this is, this is what it says. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, Shasta felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark, and he could see nothing. And the thing, or person, was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he really had no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. Who are you? Shasta whispered. I'm the one who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. His voice was not loud, but very large and deep. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. You're not something dead, are you? Oh, please go away. What harm have I ever done you? I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said. That is not the breath of a ghost. Now, tell me your sorrows. Friends, you can come to him because he sees your heart. He knows your sin. That's what he died to take from you. But he's also a savior who was well acquainted with grief. He knows what it is to have your heart shattered, have your dreams broken. And he will meet you in that place. He knows what it is, men, to have been told throughout your life you won't amount to anything. You do not have what it takes. You do not measure up. You will not come through. He knows the sorrows that have been put upon you by the absences of fathers in your life. He knows what it is to have to fight and struggle like you've done every day of your life, to be under the pressure that you're under. He says, tell me your sorrows. Let me carry those with you and for you. Because of him, when you give the sin to him, when you give the sorrow to him, you have hope. Doesn't mean everything gets peachy and swell all of a sudden. But there's this hope that begins to emerge in your heart in the midst of whatever it is you're struggling with. Might as well go back to the text. Verse 6, 
The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put out his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It, it's this beautiful poetic picture of what the very righteousness of the Savior is going to accomplish, that the very creation itself is going to be reordered totally and completely reordered. That's what the shoot from the stump of Jesse will accomplish. Listen to what Tim Keller writes. He says, all the effects of sin and all the decay of the world will be healed. Not only will there be physical liberation from disease, aging, and death, but there will be social liberation from the poverty, war, racism, and crime that infest our world, as well as psychological liberation from the fear, guilt, shame, and despair that infect us now. All things will finally be mended, put fully right. We ourselves will be made new, but we will also receive a renewed world in which to live with Christ in our resurrected bodies. We have a hope because of the righteous branch, because of his death on the cross, because death could not hold him, because he rose victorious. But it is only for those who trust in him. There's an amazing scene in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I'm going to get one of those in too. It comes after the final battle. The ring of power has been destroyed. The evil Lord Sauron has been defeated. Good has triumphed. And the hobbits, Frodo and Sam, have been rescued. They're in the houses of healing. They wake up. They're finally clean. They've got on new clothes. They're in a soft bed. And there Frodo looks up and sees his friend Gandalf, whom he had watched die in the mines of Moria. And Frodo says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but I thought I was dead too. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? And Gandalf says, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And he listened. As he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. The lion and the lamb, the adders and the snakes, the little children are going to play over cobra's dens. There's a future hope. And, and I want to tell you this. When, when your name has been written in his book because you've trusted him with your life, then on that day, and, and there will be that day for each one of us, whether it comes through a natural death or it comes when Jesus returns again, on that day when the trumpet calls out and your name your name is red? Do you realize he's going to laugh, not at you, but because of you, for the sheer joy of you, because of the delight of his heart for you, that you came to his son, 
that you trusted the one he sent, that you received the gift, that you accepted what he has provided, and now forevermore, friends, we're going to rejoice forevermore in the joy of our Father, the delightful one, the all-glorious one. Oh, glory to you, Lord. All praise to you, Lord. How majestic and beautiful is your name. The name of Jesus. It is at the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow on heaven and upon the earth. It is at the name of Jesus that every tongue shall confess that he is Lord, all to the glory of the Father. Oh, Lord, would you pour out upon my friends. Lord, would you wake up the careless this morning? Would you save the lost? Would you pour out power upon those who are ready to say yes in obedience to you? And would you change this world through our witness to the beauty of who you are? Jesus' beautiful name and his mighty goodness, I pray. Amen.